Make sure you love your space because there's going to be days where it's awful. Yeah. The major thing that I could tell you about finding co-founders is how to do it wrong. Venture math, it's, it's just like thermal physics. You always have to look to the future. You know the phrase, what have you done for me lately? It recurses forward, basically. And so you need to think about your IPO, like when you're raising a seed round. Hi, I'm Paul Berger, founder of CircleCI. I'm Edith Harba, CEO and co-founder at LaunchDarkly. And you're listening to To Be Continuous, a podcast about continuous delivery and software development. You can get in touch with us anytime at our Twitter handle, at ContinuousCast. The show is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. Paul, you found co-founders twice? Three times, actually. Three times? Yeah. Well, I guess the first time they found me. So tell me about finding co-founders. I think that the the major thing that I could tell you about finding co-founders is, is how to do it wrong, <laughs> um, and in particular how to how to avoid the, those kind of problems. Yeah, I mean, so I, I've only found a co-founder once, and it's worked out so far. So, how long did you know John? Oh, I don't want to admit how long. Fifteen years. <laughs> Not that long, but okay. a while. I think that's the major thing about about co-founders. You want to find someone who you really, really get on well with, like you have great chemistry with, and I think. Knowing them a long time is probably the best way to to do that. And I, I think even then, like um, I had hesitation, you know, because mm-hmm. there's many people that I will go to happy hour with every night, but yeah. I would never in a gazillion years start a company. That's with right. Them. Yeah, I, I have I have the same. And it doesn't make them bad people. Right. 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 It's just well, sometimes they are bad people, but they're still fun to go to happy hour. Yeah. With. Exactly. Yeah. I have, I have a handful of friends who like I know they're assholes, but like they're still my friends. Uh, <laughs> who's on that list? Uh, no one you know. <laughs> Is the top of the list Edith Harba? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> with like a so, with like a <laughs> with a, with a dagger drawn in. Yeah. So the best way to find a co-founder is someone else recommends them. Yeah. So li- like all things, if if you if you're interested in being my co-founder, you should get someone that I know and respect to recommend you. So Edith is automatically not on the list then. Edith is not on the list. I don't know anyone who who respects you that I also respect. Ouch! That that is a complete lie. Obviously, uh, I'm, so, I'm sorry if I hurt you. The the, the truth is obviously the opposite. <laughs> Paul's like, this is funny until like, oh uh, yeah, no, no. <laughs> stepped over that line. So I just didn't want to get hit up by a lot of intro people wanting intros. So the way that I go about co-founders, or the way that I've I've gone about this is I've uh, you know reach out to my network and be like, you know, here's what I'm looking for, here's what I'm building, and I have a phone call with people. And then I meet them in person. And then after I meet them in person, I send them the checklist, or not not the checklist, but like the questionnaire. And if you've uh, if you've ever used OkCupid, it's it's very similar to, <laughs> to to that kind of questionnaire. Does it you, ask them like, you know, what's their favorite eighties movie? You know, it's I I think something along those lines, but you know, mostly about startups. So it's like, you know, what kind of startup do you want to build? Do you want to big build a big startup or a small startup? What do you view your role before you find product market fit? What 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 do you want your role to be after we find product market fit? What are your what are your skills in terms of sales, in terms of marketing, in terms of product validation, in terms of software engineering, all, all this sort of thing. So I have like I think I counted 27 questions that I, I would expect someone to write about a paragraph about. And I, and I also answered them and so we we trade them and then we then we go and have a chat about them and we see you know what are the strengths? What are the? Do we complement each other? You know, are we able to work through the differences? You know, basically the kind of question, and and this is also what OkCupid is really about: is do we have the same shared values? 
And this is fascinating. I mean, are you looking for a hundred percent fit, or do they have to be kind of close match? Or like, I, I think the most important thing really is is the chemistry and being able to resolve differences because the, 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 there's no hundred percent fits. Yeah, it's it's funny. So I I give a lot of advice to people from my old accelerator because I try mm-hmm. to give back. And the two bits of advice I always give are: make sure you love your space. Mm-hmm. Make sure you. Well, I mean, not. I mean, uh, I, I think love is, is a good. Yeah, yeah. Because there's going to be days, right, which are awful. Yeah. And if you do not have that, yeah, your company will fall apart in an afternoon. Right, right. Because you're Absolutely. literally, I've seen it happen. They'll be like, I never yeah. liked this space, and I never liked you. Yeah. <laughs> No, literally, like, and like, fuck you, I'm, I'm quitting. Yeah. Or you're like, so I, I think uh, Y Combinator says that about sixty to seventy percent of company failures is just like co-founder relationships. Yeah. So why do you think you? I, I mean, I don't want to have you talk about anything you're not comfortable with, mm-hmm. but why? What do you think didn't work out with earlier co-founders? What were your lessons learned? So being on the same page about what, what we're building, I think, is one, and then knowing how to communicate. Yeah. So knowing how to communicate together, and I, I, I think. Yeah, you know, many of my co-founders in the past have been have been engineers, and I was an engineer, and we all suffered to a certain degree from this sort of like, you know, engineers don't necessarily have a great deal of empathy, mm. and I feel that when dealing with conflict and and when when working together with a co-founder, having you know having a great deal of empathy for for each other, I think is is something that's essential to. To, to overcome the, the the difficulties, basically. Yeah, I mean, there's so many times you can be like, "Does this person mean to like? Why did they do this?" Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you, you never want to end up in a situation where you hate each other. Yeah, it's so like, or, um, or even where you have the potential to do that. Like, uh, you can't rescue relationships. Uh, so, like, by the time you get to the point of trying to rescue it, it's already dead. I, I was gonna make a joke, and then I was like, I don't think this will be funny. No, no, there's. <laughs> Everyone's thinking back to like you know the, the time that the relationship that failed that shouldn't have failed and, and like yeah it's it's not not a not a joke in time. I think what was helpful for John and I is that we knew we wanted to start the company, but we said let's. I said this. I said mm-hmm. let's work on it for you know five hours a week. Yeah. Before we quit our day jobs. Yeah. Great. And let's figure out if we can work together. Yeah. So like it wasn't the it wasn't what we're working on now at all. It was an idea like four ideas back. Okay. But we're like, okay, we can work together. So one of the one of the interesting things about this is is that I I have one idea that I want to work on, and I I don't want to like pivot my way to 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 a good idea. You, right? you want this idea? I, I want I want this idea. And I mean, you know, there's variations of how the idea might actually hit hit the market. But like, you know, I'm not going to choose between this and a consumer app and and some other app. Well, so John and I were in a different space because we knew we wanted to work together. and We didn't have an idea. Right, right, right. So we kept thrashing about, and finally I said, like, mm-hmm. this is not the right idea. Yeah. Let's just try working on it. But you ended up in a space that you both loved. Yeah, but because we we said okay, we could work together. Mm-hmm. This first idea isn't right. The second idea wasn't right. Right. Third idea wasn't right. The fourth idea, we're like, yes. Did you do anything to improve how good co-founders you were to each other? And so what I'm thinking of here is the the rap genius founders go to couples therapy. <laughs> uh, we haven't done that yet. Might be an idea. Um, yeah, like you, you always want to go to couples therapy before you have a problem. It helps you communicate. Helps you be on the same page. Like you don't want to, you don't want to be you know the the nth couple that goes to couples therapy. Be like we're about to split up. Save us! And be like, oh, <laughs> should have should have come in two years ago. This house is almost burnt to the ground. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> Can you save us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like no, like, no, no, yeah. like, no. So when you say engineer versus artist, I have no idea what you're talking about. 
So I just took a management course from Michael Deering, which was mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah, Michael Deering is absolutely awesome. I love taking courses. Like, okay. To me, like I think some people think of school as punishment, mm-hmm. whereas I love school. I think once you're once you're really into the topic, like, um, I, like I went to um, a Marty Kagan course, mm-hmm. which is like the best two days I've I've ever spent on product. I, I, maybe maybe overall. Yeah, I mean, like I got an engineering degree and I got an econ degree too because I like I like studying, which makes me sound like a nerd, which I am. So you went to Michael Deering's course. Yeah, and um, he asked us to describe the best engineer we knew. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I actually described my co-founder John. Oh, you guys are adorable. You know, we've known each other a long time. And then he asked to describe the best artist we knew. Mm-hmm. And I actually really grappled with that. And I think it's because I'm such a hard-nosed engineer that, like, to think of an artist I admired, I just thought of these fluffy, frou-frou people. And yeah, I was yeah, of like, course. This is kind of awful of me. Yeah. Eventually, I decided that my VC James Cham was the best artist I knew. Okay. Because he's very creative and he sees the best in people. Does he do art? Or does he mean artist in some other way? I think artist in that a free spirit and creator. Okay. Like he creates companies. Mm-hmm. Like what do you what do you see as the difference between an engineer and an artist? I guess that there's quite a lot of overlap, and, and the first thing that kind of comes to mind is um, Paul Graham's book, Hackers and Painters. Mm-hmm. And his point is like, I mean, hackers and painters are engineers and artists, right? Yeah. Uh, so I, I guess he's saying like, yeah, you know, they're, they're kind of the same thing. So I see a lot of art in engineering. Like you can build a lot of beautiful uh, abstractions and, and elegant code and, and, and that kind of thing. But I guess I don't put a great deal of, of value in in art itself. Like sure, the, those pictures are pretty, but I, I don't want to speculate about the themes and what it says about life and, and all that bullshit. I thought you liked the Sistine Chapel. Yeah, the Sistine Chapel is beautiful. I mean, so that is like you know this amazing work, right? But if if you show me like Four rectangles and one of them is red, and ask me to say what, what the world is about through that lens. It's like, yeah, fuck off. Let's <laughs> do, 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 do you think that's the the Irish in you, or do you think that's the Paul in you? A lot of it is is the Irish in me. Like we're, we're very cynical, self deprecating, but that also means like deprecating other people. Or we don't really like bullshit, which is ironic because uh, there's a great deal of Irish artists. They're just all authors. Yeah, well, there like was about Joyce and, Joyce and Yates and, and Shaw. Yeah, yeah. I, I like impressionist art, but anything after that kind of misses the mark. Really don't me. like impressionism. What? Really don't like impressionism. So when you go to when you go to Rome, mm-hmm. you go to the museum. What mm-hmm. do you like about the museum? I like the big marble statues oh, that usually so cool. are like of dragons or something. They're so cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In in Rome, there's this. Um, Museum called the, I think it's called Villa Borghese. I tried to go. Oh yeah. Oh, I told you about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But like, you need a ticket like months in advance. Which really? I just kind of wandered in on a Sunday morning. I I went on a bad day because they, yeah. they're like, nope. Interesting. Yeah. So you appreciate art. I appreciate some art. The less bullshit, the better. So I'll, I'll just give away the punchline. Okay. Yeah. Let's. So the, the punchline of this whole thing was that the engineer and the artist are the same person. Of course. Yeah. 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 Was that the punchline in in MD's class? Okay, so you've you've ruined you've spoiled the punchline for anyone who's going to do his course. Oh yeah, is there more to his course, or was that it? I can I can give away all the cliff notes right now. But oh, um, excellent. Oh. He, he, um, management is good. Management. Is good. <laughs> I feel like we just did that podcast. <laughs> management is good. Mm-hmm. Have a little bit of fun at work. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to talk today about the SaaS funding napkin, which was a blog post by Christoph Jans, who's at a VC at Point Nine Capital. 
And I thought this was great. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was amazing. It was, it was funny that we both mentioned it to each other. We, we both read this separately. Well, the reason why I thought it was great is um, so we just raised our A. And you know what happens as soon as you raise a round? Uh, people start trying to give you more money for some reason. <laughs> yeah, you start thinking about your next round. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. That's always valuable. So there's an interesting thing that he says in this is, is that you kind of need to think about your, you know, the point that you're at at like the 300 million revenue, and you need to think about that like all the way back to the seed round nearly. Oh yeah, and it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, um, I was thinking about why previous startups I've worked have have failed, and I mm-hmm. realized, or not not failed per se, but not succeeded, and I realized how important TAM really is. Okay, yeah, yeah. Like um, total addressable market. Yeah. Yeah. Like, because you can have a very successful product, but if unless you have the ability to get to three hundred million, it's hard right. to get VC money. So it's it's interesting that you always need to be thinking about your next round. Yep. Right. And then the implication is of that is that at your next round, you need to be thinking about the next round. Oh yeah. So there there's a lot of sort of like it recurses forward basically, and so you need to think about your IPO yeah. um, before like when you're raising a seed round. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, at least, at least have some notion of how you'll get there, like a notational roadmap. Right. 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 And I think I think that everything in in his napkin. Uh, so the, the the napkin talks about for each of the stages: pre-seed, seed, series A, series B, series C. You know, what, what do you need to have to to raise a good amount? Like, what does your team need to be like? What does your tech need to be like? What does your MMR MRR need to be? Yeah. And I, I thought it was great. I mean, so I I disagreed with portions of it. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you disagree with? Uh, but I loved his framework. Yeah. Um, let's see. I think he alighted over something which Thomas Tunkos actually wrote about, mm-hmm. which is they love to glom on all these metrics. You know, like you need to have 100 to 250k MRR to, to raise an A. Yep. Yep. And then there's this huge asterisk. Okay. What's in the asterisk? 27% of companies who raise a Series A. Yeah. Have zero. Have zero revenue. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah which is huge when and you think I, of it. I think I think some much larger number had like I don't I don't think there's very many companies who are raising with a hundred to two fifty k. Like Circle raised on raised a Series A on seventy k. Now that was that was a few years ago, and I've I've heard since that like raising a really good round is like done at a quarter of a million. But but yet the the, the statistics show that zero zero. And so why why are they raising with zero? Because uh, they can tell a good story about other proof points of traction. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So the so, so, I, I think so, an important part of this is that it's SaaS, and SaaS is just such a well understood space from a metrics point of view that like th- there is a bunch of VCs who can just look at the metrics and say yes or no uh, without even maybe even without even talking to the team. And I hate that. I think that if you're in a breakout business, your metrics are going to be terrible until they're awesome. Yeah, but if you're raising a Series A, you've had plenty of time to get it to get them to awesome. Yeah, but yet, twenty seven percent of companies have zero. Are are these founders who have had an exit before, or something along those lines? That's my assumption. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I have a friend who might get a preemptive A. Pre- yeah. With with no metrics, like he right. literally formed a company. Right. And were they a successful founder? Had they had an exit, something like that? Uh, they'd been in a company with a big exit, but they were not the founder there. Okay, so the company is. I'm going to pick randomly like Dropbox, and and they were like the co-founder of Dropbox. They were not the co-founder, right? Yeah, oh, it's not the co-founder, but like there, there's a bunch of companies that were founded by like early Facebook employees. Yeah, right. That that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, I guess Path being perhaps one that springs to mind. Right, right, right. Cora, right? 
Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. But so I, I think as a, as a SaaS founder, you can obsess over all these metrics, and mm-hmm. it's like, well, wait a second. Well, I mean, the, I, I think it's great to obsess about the metrics. Oh, I mean, I the, the metri- but the metrics are like real business metrics. Like yeah. they're, they're they're not like fake metrics, or they're not like you know eyeballs or or user retention. Like they're they're, they're I mean, user retention is very important, but they're not like the the dot com era fake metrics. Yeah, I think it's I think it's just interesting though because um, I think VCs like to claim that they're guided by science when really at the end of the day you're like, well, the twenty seven percent that have zero metrics. Well, I, I think that makes sense because if VCs are just guided by science, then then they they kind of bring no value to to the table. And like LPs could invest directly in. Or there's the Moneyball theory that like, why do you have VCs at all? Why not just chug all your metrics into you know like a FICO score type thing, and then out pops whatever your valuation is. Right, and I I, th- I think that that. A lot of the value of VCs is that they do actually know, you know, a little something about startups. At least the good, the good VCs do. Well, uh, yeah, a, no. a good value add VC will be like, this is a diamond in the rough. Right. Exactly. I, I'm thinking back to the to the Facebook and what they saw in Facebook, and it was that there wasn't very much revenue. Actually, there wasn't really any ad revenue. There was no like validation of of the ad business. And this is why a whole bunch of those reporters were saying like, "Oh, it's bullshit. They they barely make any money. Like, why do you why do you think Facebook's good?" And the VCs knew that uh, the amount of time that the customers spent on Facebook was unprecedented, yeah. and that that metric alone was enough to lead to like an amazing valuation, and and that they they really wanted in on that company. It was going to be a breakout company, and I I think this is really good actually because you can contrast how reporters think about things because reporters think like know almost nothing about anything that they're reporting on, <laughs> whereas the people like VCs who are you know deep in it, while many of them also don't know shit. You know, the ones who really know their stuff like will will just be like night and day ahead of ahead of anyone else. Well, so here's a counterpoint: secret. S- secret, I totally agree. like. S- secret was perfect. So so secret was this company that raised. They did a ten million secondary yeah, or something like something that. Something huge. Yeah. So I think they raised like fifteen million, and and six of it was was secondary. And so that means the founders just got that cash themselves and bought a Lamborghini. Yeah. yeah. So I did the numbers on my on my Twitter a few years ago on on Secret, and it was it was perfect. It was like when you when you do the numbers from a VC perspective, that was an excellent bet. It was a bet that lost, but you need to keep making those bets. Yeah, it's funny. So Dave McClure invested. Story about myself is Dave McClure is very metrics driven, very mm-hmm. AR. Yeah. He invested in us when we we had no revenue. Okay. When I met him, uh, when I, when I saw him, he's like, "Well, Edith, I knew you." Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, I was yeah. like, "Why do you invest in us? You're the king of like." Right, but you, you, you're you, and so like, yeah, that's worth investing in. Yeah, yeah, which I thought was funny that even the guy who preaches up and down, you know, a yeah. he's like, well, well. So for secret, the metrics that they had was like, you know, this really high engagement, really high growth, and there was a strong potential to be the next Facebook. Yeah, that's that's what you're given. Time to make a bet. Well, what are you going to do? You're going you're going to bet on on that. And the VCs are right to bet out of that because sure 9 times out of 10 it's not going to turn into Facebook. But the time that it does turn into Facebook you're going to have a 100x return or maybe more. And so overall that's an expected value of 10x for that investment in in secret. Well, you're buying on growth. It's funny because um he has another article on his blog about um his hatred of the hockey stick graph. Who's he? Uh Christoph Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. About his hatred of the hockey stick giraffe that you see at every demo day. Yeah, yeah. You know the graph, right? Yeah, I, I know the one. It's got three months in it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's the whole thing that like you're trying to force investors to buy growth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, but th- that, that's because that's all investors want. The only thing that matters is compounding growth. That's what makes VC the game that it is. Yeah, 
I think what's interesting though is that you start to hit your B, and this is what I was looking at, is mm-hmm. that like suddenly the music starts to slow down a little bit. Right, right, right. Well, because growth slows down around the B. And you can no longer the VCs who invest in your B only care about the numbers at that point. They're, they're no longer willing to take a punt because of great founders or a great team. It's like you've hit your numbers or you, or you haven't. You know, the, the chair is being pulled, the music stops, is, is there a seat for you? Yeah, it's funny. So I, I give advice to people in my accelerator and I say at the pre-seed stage or even the seed, you're really pitching team, dream, and traction. Okay, yeah, yeah. And you really can get away with just one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like you know, like if you're if you're just this, like say you're a bunch of founders who just left Google or yeah. just left Stanford or something like that. Or, yeah, you, or, you can probably raise on on or just like, team or like buoyant, which was some ex Twitter engineers. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's like well, who's not going to want to invest in this? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And Twitter then, really? What? Twitter? Hulk. And then um, not everybody's Mozilla, dude. No. Oh my god. And then so then you can you, I think you can get away with one out of the three at your mm-hmm. seed. I think right. at your A you have to have two out of three. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think at your B, I mean, you've got. But, to, well, I mean, you'll, at your A, if you don't have team, it, there has to be team. Well, uh, let me let me say this. I think you have to have a team, but you don't have to have such a pedigreed team if you have the metrics. Right, but you but you have to have grown into good founders. Yeah. Like you you can get away in your seed without having a great team because, like, essentially they're looking for social proof. But the the team that they're looking for at Series A are like people who are executing well, and you you can't get away with that. Well, I, I guess having that. what I was trying to say, um, maybe I'll just be more blunt, mm-hmm. is at your A, you can still get a pass of like, oh, these are, you know, I'll say it again, you, these ex engineers from Twitter, mm-hmm. they have this great vision. Maybe their yeah. metrics are still not great and they have zero revenue. Maybe we need to bring in a CEO. Well, well no, no. So that's, that's why I think A companies get funded with zero mm-hmm. revenue. It's like, okay. Right, 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 right. Because the team is good. The team is good. The dream is still good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so uh, Javier. Soltero, right? Yeah. He has a, this talk on, on on heavy bit, and he says that sometimes it's better to have no revenue than some revenue. Yeah, because as, right. as soon as you start to have revenue, people start to pick it apart because right. they can and, look at what's your CAC. Right. Un- until then, you can, you can sell the dream. Yeah. So that, yeah. that's why I say the seed. I think they talked about this in Silicon Valley, right? I don't watch the show. Oh, you should. Yeah. So one of the things that I really liked about Christoph's napkin is he talks about product market fit. It's a metaphorical napkin, dude. It's it's a. I mean, he makes it look like a napkin, but he has a logo on his napkin, and I'm wondering about that. It would be pretty cool if they printed out a bunch and like give him away at a party. He talks about clear product market fit, right? In order to raise an A and and anything after that, you need to have clear product market fit. And one of the areas that I see companies. Fail is where they manage to raise an A without having product market fit or or a B. Yeah, yeah, and then eventually the music stops because like you fake growth of some kind. You've bought ads or you're you're a famous founder or you won South by Southwest or something like that, and well, so I mean, you get a whole ton of growth at that. Let's let's pick up our medium. Mm-hmm. That's actually pretty relevant right now. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah super yeah. famous founder. Yeah, Ed Williams. Yeah, you know, founded you know. Yep, yep. Blogger, Twitter. Yeah. Did he take money for it or is he just putting his own cash in? Medium? No, they were venture funded. Okay. They took, yep. I think, like a hundred million. Okay, yeah, yeah. But I mean, eventually the music stops. Like right, they, right, right, he, right. he just said, like, hey, we're not making They're not making money. Yeah. So they, they they essentially haven't found product market fit. Well they found something. They found that people will post essays. Yeah. I mean you you use medium, I use yeah, medium. Yeah, medium is good. But they haven't found a way to monetize it. Right, 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 right. Which is a missing part of a product market fit. And especially that they refuse to put ads on it, which I think is is gonna make making money a challenge. I've worked at ad 
supportive businesses, and you have to have a, a, a vast volume of ads. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, they, they have vast volumes of readers. I know. Are they top 100 on the internet? Yeah, it's funny that they just totally backed away from it, though. Maybe they just ran the numbers and it didn't work. Or maybe once you're Ev Williams, your vision matters more than making money. Huh. So o- overall, like, I-, I think this is the sort of thing where every founder needs to look at this napkin and not not necessarily memorize it, but like understand all the transitions. Like, you should be looking at two blocks that are next to each other and say, like, why are those different? What is it that I can learn about the differences between between those two squares? Yeah, and they, that that you have to. You do have to always think about the future. It's funny, like um, you know, I, we we got our A. I was mm-hmm. happy. The team was happy. And yeah. then I'm already thinking about the B. Well, so this is kind of the problem with the venture world. No one is ever happy. I was pretty happy. Yeah, but no, no, no one is ever happy with your results because you always have to look to the future. No matter what you do this year, there's, you know, the phrase "What have you done for me lately?" Well, yeah, it's a it's a treadmill. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, a treadmill. Yeah. It's like it's like right. um, I look at our monthly numbers, and if a year ago I would have been. F- Ecstatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And now you're like, yeah. Well, now it's like okay, because like the more your revenue, it's what you said before. The more your revenue grows, the harder it is to get growth. And even even when you have an exit, right? And I I did inverted commas or or air quotes for for people at home. The an an exit is not an exit because in order to have a good IPO, you need to sell the the story of future growth. You need to keep growing. If you if you get acquired, there's some golden handcuffs that that rely on future metrics, and so you also need the 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 future growth. So like there is no exit. Well, you make it sound like thermophysics. The venture math. It's it's just like thermal physics. Yeah, you, you know you know what the rules are, right? Like um, like second law of thermodynamics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can't. Um, what is it? Matter cannot be. You can't win. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so there's no winning. Yeah. 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 Well, there's having there's having some fun along the way. There's having fun along the way, but like when you're the biggest company in the world and your salary gets docked because you didn't quite hit numbers. Oh, like uh, are you talking about Google or Apple? I thought that was Apple. Apple. Yeah, it's a, Tim Cook had his had his salary docked, a little slap across the wrist for uh, for not making the shareholders their cash this this quarter. I think he's still doing quite well. I don't think he's. Uh, I think he's doing all right. I don't think he's had to turn yeah. down the thermostat to sixty. Maybe if he takes a look at the napkin, though, he'll he'll figure out his <laughs> figure his way out. Yeah, I, I think where companies get into trouble is where they think they've raised a round and their work is over. Oh yeah, like yeah. let's the, go frolic. Well, and, and that's kind of my point. The work is never over. NPS. So that's Net Promoter Score. We just did a, a Net Promoter Score at my company, Launch Darkly, and I really like it. How have you done at Circle CA? Uh, so we we started doing NPS very recently after hiring a head of customer success, and. I think that we we avoided stuff like NPS and general surveys because it doesn't sit very well with a developer audience. And so we were careful with a new head of customer success to make sure that when it was launched it wasn't in a way that would sort of offend our our audience sensibilities. Tell me more. Well, developers are whiny pricks. <laughs> you know, so I I've had the opposite experience. So we we have a similar audience, we solo developers. Mm-hmm. I've been blown away. That that they're that they're happy with. They're happy. Well, they they probably love your product. They love our product. Yeah. I've been doing NPS uh, surveys for a long time. Yeah, and this is the the best I've ever had. Wow, what was your score? Uh, it's in the sixties so far, which is amazing. And so that's that's the percentage of people who love it minus the percentage of people who hate it divided by the total population. Divided by okay, right. yeah. And so you get sixty. 
Yeah, in the sixties. Yeah, that's that's phenomenal. Yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah. They, like they're the developers, they're, right? And they're like, wait, your audience is developers? Yeah, I thought your audience wasn't developers, or is it your purchaser isn't the developer? Our audience, I mean, um, so uh, actually, that's one of the questions of the survey. Like, so developers implement us. Yeah. Um, and then also like a product manager, a customer success mm-hmm. can use us. So yeah. we so we sent it to everybody that touches that has a LaunchDarkly account. And we then asked people roles because I wanted to be able to segment, like yeah. uh, to your point, like if it turned out the developers hate us and product managers loved us or yeah, vice yeah, versa. Yeah, yeah. The issue is there's nothing to segment because everybody loves us. <laughs> I, I guess you also get qualitative feedback that, that comes with about why they love you. Yeah. So yeah. we we asked them for the so the score is just a scaler. Yeah. And then the interesting stuff usually is you say, like, well, why did you give the score? What do you like? What do you dislike? What mm-hmm. should we improve on? Yeah. And it's it's just it's it's just all the stuff I wish they would say. Oh, nice, it makes nice, me really nice. happy. Yeah. So I I'm very kind of against sending developer surveys because they they really don't like it. Like developers have this aversion to marketing, and I, I don't think that's as true as it was. But there's certainly still a large element of like, oh, what is this shit you're sending me? I I think they they think that they can see through the bullshit. Yeah, I, I don't know, think it really is bullshit personally, but I, I think we've had that reaction other times I've done surveys, mm-hmm. but no, I mean everybody's just said nice things. I wonder is it how that like NPS is like easy and algorithmic and so people are, are willing to reply? Oh, so I, when I was a, I took over another product once, and mm-hmm. so this is me throwing the prior people over the, under the bus. <laughs> um, I took over a product they never done NPS. Everybody claimed that everybody the product was fine. I did an NPS and it was awful. And you got qualitative about why? We got qualitative that this product was a total dud. <laughs> so, like, no one wanted it, or uh, like, what, what, what was it? The, the product doesn't work that the product doesn't the, work that great, and you had to save it, or was it like? The product is useless. There was no saving. People really like the idea of the product, but it mm-hmm. fundamentally did not work. Okay, right. well, like that, fundamentally, that's a good thing to learn. Fundamentally, did not work, and everybody had kind of been like, "Oh, it works enough," and like, right. And I, I feel that you get works enough when people don't. No, no, no. Uh, so do, the, the the engineering people inside have been like, "This is a tolerable level of yeah, yeah, works yeah, enough," yeah. and we well, did. Do, a customer do they serve. use it? Because I, I feel that this is the sort of thing, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't do NPS. But I'm saying that like there's a lot of products where if you just like go use it, you you will feel the pain, and you, you won't even need to. I mean, you should still ask customers so that you can then measure their their change when you when you fix it. But you could just feel, oh my god, this is awful. I think I think an important thing for me to do an NPS survey is that you are not your user. Right. Well, okay, true, true, but. There's this. I'm sure with that product that they could have just, if they had been their own users, they could have just, yeah, this is awful. Well, there was this layer of, I don't know, rose-colored glasses that people could see mm-hmm. that it was, it was a new product. It had a lot of rough edges. Right, right, right. Like, oh, people will be tolerant of our rough edges, and no, people were. At that, the start absolutely. of Circle, I brought my laptop to a meetup, and I got people to sign up for Circle, and oh, it's, it's just so painful. Like just watching them like fail at certain screens and like, oh, just just kind of click refresh. Oh, sorry about that. It's it's it, you know we, we we haven't fixed that bug yet and and on and on. I was like, oh, no wonder we're having problems in our in our signup flow. Yeah, I, I think I think any new product has rough edges. You know, I agree with Reid Hoffman who found on LinkedIn. He mm-hmm. said if you're not completely embarrassed, yeah, yeah, yeah you ship yeah. too late. But I was really surprised at how positive people were when I consider us still a bit of an early product. Still today you think you think of yourselves as an early product. And I guess maybe that's just a function that we when I wasn't looking we got old. 
Right, right. I mean, you've raised a Series A. That's that's not very early. Yeah, I mean, we've been in market for over a year and a half now. We've yeah, yeah. Sanded away all the. How many customers do you guys have? We don't release it publicly. Ah, okay. But enough. 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 Yeah, it's good to know. So, like six. <laughs> Circle CI. <laughs> More than six. Less yeah. than a million. Less than a million. Okay. That's a that's a big range you've left there. Yeah. Well, I mean, thanks for wearing your launch darkly shirt today. What? what? Proportion of people do you send your NPS out to? So we 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 were testing the send. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to test that we were asking the right questions. Sometimes, so we sent it to a, some people. Were like, okay, these are right questions, and now we're sending it to everybody yeah. else. So how many did you send the? Are these the right questions to? Like ten? Uh, to twenty five percent. Twenty five percent. Okay. And so you sent twenty five percent of the people that you were sending the NPS to. Did you send the NPS to everyone? Not yet. But that, that your plan is to send NPS to everyone. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Like, I mean, you're going to send that again in three months, and three months after that. Yeah. We keep ours to like a much much lower number. Why? Well, one because the sample is generally good enough. I I, I guess I love reading surveys. Yeah, but we do, we don't need to like I I feel that it interferes with people and it gives them like a sort of a a negative perception of things. Like I I I don't know if you've seen much of of how intercom. Uh, oh, you know, I, suggest you talk to their to your customers with like you know your your real face and and you know in the app at a contextually relevant time and that sort of thing and NPS is, is none of those things. Uh, so actually, I we didn't do it in app because I mm-hmm. I think that in app distracts people from what they're trying to do. Right? I, then. Uh, sure, sure, sure. And it, it makes them think of the last thing they did instead of their overall impression of like. Sure, I, I'm I'm not saying that you should do it in app. I'm saying that it is inherently a impersonal. Interaction with your customers, and you don't want to do that with all of your customers, nor do you want to do it with repeatedly to the same people. No, I agree, and repeatedly. I mean, like, so. I mean, if you're doing every three months, that's that's a lot. I, I think you could cohort it so that you're not hitting the same people over and over. Yeah, that's kind of my point. Yeah, so yeah. cohorts. Yeah, yeah, but that's that's not sending it to 100. percent It's sending it to a whole, yeah. to a cohort. It is funny though. So at Trip, we had this luxury of we had 10 million users. Right, 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 right. So you could pick like a million or something, or, or even a hundred thousand. We could, well, so we had a problem there if we would get too many results. Right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So we would so have, how many? So we would did have you to, come up with the size that was good? Yeah. So so at Tripit, we had to be careful about like how are we going to sample this so that yeah. we're getting meaningful data, but mm-hmm. not yeah, 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 having yeah, yeah. fifteen thousand surveys to read. So at launch darkly, how many people have you sent it to? <laughs> Paul, you, I'll tell you now, just not on the air. Okay. Uh, my question is, if if you've sent it to a statistically meaningful number of people. Which hits you know kind of across your your demographics and and so on, then like why continue to send it to the the rest of the audience? Oh, because it's been so positive. I wonder if there's some lurking detractors out there that we need to like root out. Is is there really value there? Yeah, I I, I wouldn't say so compared to the compared like, to the negative aspects of what are the negative? Well, the negative is that you bother people. Like they're, I, they're I don't think it's a bother at all. They're in their they're in their inbox. They're trying to do work. And then like a little the, innocent email pops up, like, yeah, and, and give takes, us feedback. Takes thirty seconds of their time Basically, multiplied dude, by. All, uh, so thirty seconds of their time multiplied by tens of thousands of users. You're you're, you're wasting like hundreds of hours of people's times, wasting productivity for an answer that you already have. You don't think people want to be heard? I think you don't think people want to have their voices heard. Ask them in three months. You don't think people want to have? Hey, I do have an opinion, and I want people to know about it. No. People fundamentally don't care about any of your products. 
Not just your products, but anyone's products. I disagree. No one cares about Coke the way Coke cares about Coke. I think having read our surveys that people do care and they want to be heard. Sure, they love your product, it's wonderful. But if you hadn't sent them that survey, they probably wouldn't have thought, you know what, Launch Darkly is wonderful. People want to feel allegiance to a brand. Uh, true, true. People want to feel that they're listened to. Like so, every mm-hmm. so it's it's funny. Like you actually, to your point, you have to be careful about doing NPS surveys because like you're you're basically asking people to be a promoter for you. You're asking people. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So are you, are you saying that by sending it out to everyone, you encourage them to promote it? Yeah. Hmm. So is that the benefit of it? The, well, that's it's a virtuous cycle. Really. It, it sounds like the benefit that you're looking for is you just like people saying nice things about you. You say that like that's a horrible thing. It's not a horrible thing, <laughs> you but say, like, you it's, say a, that's... it's a little conceited. Uh, what? So you don't like people saying nice things about you? No, I do. But when when I've had ten thousand people say nice things about me, I don't need. I, I'm not going to be like, okay, that was wonderful. Ten thousand people said nice things. What are the other ninety thousand going to say? Did ten thousand people say nice things about you? I'm sure. I'm sure they have. So hiring quick versus slow. Yes. The distinction that we have here. So so you've what doubled in size in three months? Yep. Uh, so we, we we did this after our series B as well. We we went from like forty to seventy five or or eighty in like three months. And there's always this tension of are we gonna like hire super quickly or are we gonna like space it out? So so when we were when we were very small, we spaced it out. We we you know tried to have no more than one new person a month and, and try to scale it out slowly. I think if you're it's a consequence of being at different stages. Mm-hmm. Like for us, it was very clear that we had a screaming need for more customer success people. Okay. That we were not doing a good job with our existing customers. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, hey, we have enough work right now for Three more customer success people. Okay. So it wasn't like we said, "Hey, let's double in size." It was yeah, like we yeah, said, yeah, yeah. "Here are immediate jobs right. that are not getting done," and we we do have a hiring plan of having us bring more people in at the right mm-hmm. time. It was more just that was what you needed right then. That was what we needed right then. So the thing that you get when you have rapid growth is that all of your processes break. Not so much break, but have an opportunity to evolve. An opportunity to evolve. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, the stuff that works when you're a small team will not scale up. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I love what Sean Burns, my advisor, said. He's like, mm-hmm. the stuff that gets you to 10,000 in revenue mm-hmm. will not get you to 100K in revenue, will not get you to a million, will not get you to 10 million. Right. Yeah. Completely so he's like, true. He's like, every time you have a break point where you just need to rethink what mm-hmm. you're doing. Very often, the, the processes that you have when you're small, and, and very often you have no process when you're small or, or sort of invisible process. It's it's a failure of your company to scale if you don't address what is the version of this that 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 works when we've doubled in size. Yeah, I, I think that's 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 a conscious thing that I'm trying to do right now. Yeah. It's like, and it's not a value judgment at all. Mm-hmm. It's like right, the, right, right. the processes that we're putting in place now would not have would have made no sense before. And I think we, we talked a little bit about why flat sucks in a previous episode, and I think. When you put process in in a place that that you had flat, a lot of what you're saying is you know there's a value judgment on on what we were doing before, and the people who are invested in what we were doing before for for whatever reason feel slighted that the new process. Yeah, I mean the way the way I try to position it is that um, part of scaling up is specializing, mm-hmm. and part of specializing is splitting out roles. Yep. Like we used to have our designer open also handle support. Yeah. Now we can split this out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like that, we have this opportunity to, to to concentrate and focus. Right, right. So what you're saying is that whenever you have the opportunity to change process, 
you're going to do it or you're going to like look at whether to do it? I think you have to look carefully at whether that process is still serving the goals it used to serve. Mm-hmm. Like, um, right? It's not process for process sake. It's it's the goal is is the important thing. Yeah, I mean, which is I'm examining my, my own role. Like, I used to do all the job offers myself, and I'm mm-hmm. like, do I really need to do this anymore? Right? Or do I just need to approve the salary? Right, right. Another way to maybe look at it is like, the goal is to close them, and maybe you talking to them helps close them, and so that that's going to like factor into the. To how you look at the process. Yeah, but like literally, I, I used to go into our tool and put in everybody's salary and start yeah, dating yeah, yeah, and address. Yeah. And I'm like, do I need to do this anymore? Mm-hmm. Probably not. Thanks for listening to this episode of To Be Continuous, brought to you by Heavybit and hosted by me, Paul Bigger of Circle CI, and Edith Harbaugh of Launch Darkly. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. While you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. Thank you.